Father, we thank you for your word and how it has enlightened us. It has given us information where we came from, what's right and wrong, why all this is set up the way it is and where we're going. We thank you for that information and you have made it sure, you have made it certain that these things will come to pass that have been prophesied in your word. We have seen this happen both in the past and closer to the present. But we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified through these events that unfold and what has taken place in the past may all, Lord, that we come in contact with eventually find this knowledge. May we be the ones to dispense it to them. May you use us, use our mouths, use our legs, use our hands to accomplish your purposes here, to bring people into the kingdom and make disciples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now today is Palm Sunday. It's a day that we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem one week before his death, burial, and resurrection as recorded in the four Gospels. All four Gospels have this narrative of Palm Sunday. If you were ever to take a trip to Jerusalem, you would know that he went from Bethany to the Mount of Olives, down into the valley, the Kidron Valley, and back up to this, the steps of the Temple Mount area. And it was a big procession, and people were laying down palm leaves. And palm leaves were a sign of victory and honor and wealth and prosperity. The palm tree itself, it's a large green tree that grows in the midst of the desert. And so it symbolizes blessing as well. And, and so as Jesus was coming down, they were not only waving these palm branches, but they were throwing down their cloaks uh, in addition to that. In Second Kings, there's a story about King Jehu, which we'll get to. And the same thing happened to him. They would throw their cloaks down as he was coming back into the city. And this is what Jesus did. And, of course, the donkey which is there, or the, um, the colt, the foal of an ass, is what the King James says. Uh, was used, never been ridden, and that symbolizes humility and royalty. He doesn't ride on a big steed like uh, General does, but he came in, and it was prophesied, the timing of this was all prophesied, that he would reveal himself to the nation of Israel, the people who were the chosen of God. And so that's what Palm Sunday is. As you go through the scripture, you have the depictions of everything that took place. Like, for instance, in this week, this, this is known as also the Passion Week that begins today. And Jesus goes through a few things. He ends up getting anointed by Mary in the house of Lazarus, the, the spikenard that she broke and she anointed his head and his feet, wiped his feet with her tears. That took place. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of the Jews, they challenged Jesus' authority. It is during this week that Judas betrays him. And Jesus has a few things he wants to communicate before he goes, but this is the culmination of the rejection that has been building and at this particular point, the Jews nab him during the rest of this week that is upcoming. And, of course, they crucify him. Now, what have we done as Christians with this observance, this Palm Sunday? If you read the scripture and you're familiar with Jewish history, we know the book of Daniel, chapter 9, talks about 
the Messiah being cut off, that he will show up and he will be cut off, which means he had to be crucified, at least from the New Testament perspective, that's exactly what happened. And it was right down to the day, and I'll get to that uh, in a moment. But all this took place to fulfill God's plan to bring us salvation. And it's very clear in Scripture. But you know, like the Jews, the Jews had the law or the Torah, the five books of Moses and also the Old Testament, the minor prophets, the major prophets, the history that it takes place uh, in the Old Testament. And the Jews decided, well, you know, in order to keep this Old Testament law, we need some commentary added to it. So we're going to add some things. And what ended up happening by Jesus's time, the commentary, which would be the Mishnah, they decided that was more important than the actual scripture. And that's what Jesus condemned them for. They were adding things to the scripture, and Jesus said, this is wrong, you guys are sinful, you are evil, and they become they became greedy in their pursuit of wealth, and they wanted this power, and if, they're, if it wasn't done their way, it was the highway, basically. And so again, Jesus condemned them for that. Well, what have we done with the triumphal entry? Well, to explain this, I have to go back to Christmas. Now we have Christmas, the, the Christian church. We know that Jesus was not born on December 25th. He was probably born around this time of year, maybe April, March, it may, somewhere in there in the springtime because we know the shepherds are in their field tending the flocks at night. And they don't do that in the winter. So Jesus would not have been born December 25th. But it was the church by tradition. We just, they just said, okay, we're going to supplant a pagan holiday and we're going to install the celebration of christmas and so the church has said okay we now have the 12 days of christmas and by church tradition the 12 days of christmas go from december 25th usually to january 5th that's 12 days in there and then when you get to january 6th and you've heard the songs on the sixth day of christmas my true love that is all catholic tradition that is what that deals with. And then you get to January 6th, and it starts a time known as Carnival. Now you go, Carnival, doesn't that, isn't that like New Orleans? Or how do you say that? New Orleans? Something like that? And then you have Fat Tuesday, and you have Mardi Gras. Then you have Ash Wednesday, and then you have Lent now, this is what we've done as a church. Now, I protest this, and saying that I protest this means I'm a Protestant, and we are a Protestant church. We're not a Catholic church. Now, just give the Protestant church enough time, and we'll do it ourselves. We'll make something else up that will be better. So I don't want to cast dispersion on the Catholic church like, oh, you pagans, you heathens, what have you done? You know, we would do the same thing. If we just had enough time, instead of being these protesters, this Protestant movement, given enough time, we would do the same thing. So we are not guiltless in this. And we have done this even as Protestants, things that we observe. And even the Lutheran church, you know, they have their traditions that they follow as well, even though they've rejected a lot of the Catholic church. And we come from that strain. So what is it exactly that is taking place? Well, after, on January 6th, it's this time of carnival that takes place. And it's this celebration prior to the time of fasting and Lent. 
Now, what begins this is Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday is 51 days before Easter or the resurrection day takes place. And Ash Wednesday, or that, that is the whole time that leads up to this, this uh, particular time of going into carnival. And Ash Wednesday is midway. It's actually 45 or 46 days before it gets to the Easter time, and they celebrate that. And what, what people are supposed to do during that time is first, Ash Wednesday, they take the ashes and they put it on the head in the form of a cross. And it's supposed to symbolize repentance and crucifixion and denying yourself because in the old testament there were references to sackcloth and ashes and so they take ashes like job he would put ashes upon his head king david would put ashes upon his head and then there were the sackcloth which is like a gunny sack material and they would show that they were sorrowful that they were seeking after god that they were repentant and that's what ash wednesday is about and from that point if you count um, this Ash Wednesday going into Easter time, it's 40 days if you don't count Sundays. And so during that 40-day period for the Catholic Church, you would give up things like meat on Fridays, or you would look for something to give up during the Lenten season, showing God that you are willing to sacrifice and hopefully his favor comes back to you. Now, we reject that as Protestants. As Calvary Chapel, we reject that. God doesn't look at us and say, oh, you get this reward because you've been so good. No, we are utterly sinful. And God blesses us in spite of our sinfulness. He says, I'm going to bless you anyway. How, you filthy sinner? And we say, we know, we are. And he goes, good. Now that you acknowledge that, I can even bless you more. And so we don't walk this walk of doing good things so God will reward us. But that's what the Lenten season is about. That you sacrifice so that God will look upon you and say, oh, look how much they've sacrificed. Oh, they need a blessing from me because they have done this. It doesn't work like that in Scripture. But several traditions have this, what can we do for God? Not the focus on what God has done for us. And so we get to the Easter season, so to speak. We come to... Right before we get there, we have the carnival and we have that Fat Tuesday and Mardi Gras. And Mardi Gras in French means Fat Tuesday. That's what it means. So what is, what is Fat Tuesday and what is Mardi Gras? Mardi Gras is a time where let's just go out and sin because we're starting Lent tomorrow. That's exactly what it is. And if you go to New Orleans, when we once went to Bay St. Louis... We had to go to Biloxi, Mississippi, because we were trying to do something that was a blessing for the people in Bay St. Louis. It was the time of the Super Bowl, and we said, you know what? There's nothing left in this town, and people are living in tents, and they're coming in, they're getting food, and it's really rough on them. Let's get a television. Let's get some guacamole and some chips, and we're going to throw a Super Bowl party for the people in the community here. And we did, and it was a fun party, but we had to go all the way to Biloxi to get the guacamole. And we were calling here, hey, can you get a delivery of guacamole to the such and such place over in Biloxi? And we found the store, and we drove, you know, a couple hours over there or an hour and a half, whatever it was, to get that. We brought it back, and we bought the TV, and we set everything up, and we fed these people, and it was a great time. 
for them because they had lost everything. And so we wanted to surprise them a little bit. And when we went, when I went over to Biloxi, the streets were just breaking up because it was Mardi Gras at that particular time. And they had these beads going around their necks and there was this parade that was going on. And it was, it was just like, wow, they're, they're just shutting everything down. And it's a great time for all the people there, just a party type atmosphere. And so you could see that now, hopefully you haven't been on Bourbon street during Mardi Gras, but if you have, you know, the Lord, let the Lord speak to you about that. If there's anything wrong, great. If there's anything right, great. You know, he, he has a way of taking care of that stuff. But if you go down to Brazil, I mean, all you have to do is look at a couple of pictures of carnival down in Brazil and you're going, I don't think this is a good thing because they're given to revelry and drunkenness and there's thievery that takes place just in a rampant way in such a poor part of town and there's all this glitz and this glamour and there are all these stands that people purchase tickets to sit in to see the chicanery and the revelry and the nakedness that actually goes through the town. And it's only in the Catholic communities countries that this takes place because the christians thought you know let's party a little bit before we have to give up something now where this was thought to have started is in italy the italians they did this over in venice if you didn't go to a mardi gras time in venice you had not experienced mardi gras to its fullest and then it went over to portugal and spain and france and it made it over here because of france new orleans you know they speak creole and french down in new orleans and so they just brought the traditions over here so in the united states as they're preparing this time of lent they just have at it. Get the brewskis out, the keggers, whatever you're going to do. Just have a riotous time. And on, by the way, the Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't celebrate Mardi Gras and Lenten the same time the Catholic Church does. They wait till Monday and they call it Clean Monday is what they call it. And so they give up something on Clean Monday in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so that's how they celebrate the Lenten season is by doing that. It's the lead up to Passover and the triumphal entry. And so this is what is taking place. Now, again, in the Old Testament, the dust and the ashes were used as symbols of repentance in Second Samuel thirteen nineteen, Esther chapter 4, verse 1, Job chapter 2, and Daniel chapter 9. This, this is a tradition, and so that was transferred to the church. Then you get to Palm Sunday, or what is known as the Passion Week. And of course, we have a couple of palm leaves that are up here. Now, what will happen inside of a Catholic service Uh, Not all Catholic churches do this, but they'll have a ceremony where the priest will bless some palm leaves. And they take these palm leaves and give one to each parishioner that comes in. And they usually have a procession that comes down the middle and they file off to either side. And these palm branches have, these palm leaves have been blessed. And so after the service is done and they go through some liturgy, after it's done, they don't just throw away those palm branches. They collect them all. They let them dry, they burn them, and then they use that ash for the next Ash Wednesday is what they do. And so they have it all collected. You know, they let it set for weeks or months, and then they go ahead and burn it up. And they have a little ceremony that they do for that. And so that's what we have done with the triumphal entry and the Passion Week. And we have broken the days into different days. And when I say we I'm referring to the Christian church universal because it was only for 1,600 years 
it was only the Catholic Church. And Catholic by meaning universal. That's what Catholic means. It's universal. Where now today, the Catholic Church is another sect of Christianity. You know, you have the Lutherans, you have the Catholics, you have the Protestants, and in Protestantism, you have several different sects all the way into the cults. And so it's divided up like that. But this is what we have done. Now, the Passion Week goes from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And you have Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, Spy Wednesday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. And then you have Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. So what is Holy Monday? Holy Monday is the day in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus cleanses the temple, praises the children, or gets praises from the children, and curses the fig tree. That all takes place on Holy Monday. And this is the place where it reads from out of little children and out of infants, you have ordained praise. And so the children are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus shows up on his little donkey, he shows up there and they're saying, Hosanna, save now. They're asking Jesus as the Messiah to save now, which is just causing the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees to pop a blood vessel in their neck because they're just getting so uptight that they're almost worshiping. I'm saying, I think that some of them were worshiping Jesus as the Messiah and they just couldn't stand it. And this was like the beginning of the last straw for them. And so that was Holy Monday. Holy Tuesday, according to common interpretation of the Bible, Holy Tuesday is when Jesus was he issued various challenges to the Pharisees and the Sadducees over subjects such as marriage in heaven, paying taxes to Caesar, and the source of his authority. Remember, they asked him, so where do you get this authority? And he asked about John the Baptist. So tell me, where did John the Baptist come from? Did he come from heaven? Did he not? You know, what's the deal with that? They said, well, we're not going to answer you on that because they would have been trapped either way they answered. And he goes, well, I'm not going to answer you either. You know, it's just like right back in their face. That just made them even another vein just popped in their neck, you know, because they weren't getting satisfaction. And, and Jesus is God. He knows what they're thinking according to the will of the Father by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And so there's no way they can win. And so God is just, he's talking them down. And they're just frustrated at this point because they see that they're losing power. They were upset that everybody was going over to Jesus. A whole town might end up getting saved. And we can't have that because that would be our power. When we hold on to power so tight like that, I think Jesus lovingly loves to take it away from us. And he has a way of humbling us. And he did this with the Jews eventually. As you know, in 70 AD, the whole town was torn apart and the temple was destroyed then you have spy wednesday now why would they call it spy wednesday it's because wednesday is supposedly the day that judas went and bargained for jesus to be betrayed he was a spy is who he was so they brought him in or they he went into them and of course 30 pieces of silver was the price for judas to betray jesus and that's when that took place, was on Spy Wednesday. Then there's Monday, Thursday. Monday, or Monday, being spelled M-A-U-N-D-Y, which is a Latin word for command. And this is where Jesus, he had the Last Supper, not like Da Vinci's Last Supper. Or was it Michelangelo? I think it was Da Vinci, right? In that Last Supper depiction, you see Jesus in this 
center of this long table and his head is bowed and his hands are up. And then Mary is either on the left side or right side. I don't know which one she's on. And then you have all the disciples and they're all named as you go through there and they all had goblets. That's not how they ate. They ate reclining is what they did. They were on one arm like this and they'd reach over with some pita bread or whatever they had. In this case, it would be matzah and they'd dip it in the oil and balsamic vinegar and they'd eat that and it had some spices in it. You can eat like that if you want to go to Israel today. They'll, they'll set you up like that. And if you don't want to lay down or recline, they'll put you in a regular table, but they'll give you all the same thing and you don't have any utensils. We've gone there before and it's like, Hope your hands are clean and you just get right in there and everybody is dipping in the same bowls. You know, no double dipping. You don't want to do that, but you dip in the bowl and you pull out the olive oil and the balsamic vinegar and it, it's like a feast and you sit around and you chit chat. Now, if you're all laying down, kind of uh, prostrate on a particular couch or bench, sometimes you would be head to head. And so it's a real intimate setting. We don't eat like that. We said everybody has their place at the table and it's across the way and you have your plate and you have your knife with the blade facing in and you have your forks a different size. And that's how we eat, right? Something formal. The Last Supper would have been for us if it was a Passover meal. Oh, we got to bring out the fine china and all the silver. Back then, no silver. Here's your hand. Here's the cup. It was very basic. And so that's what took place on this Monday, Thursday, but also This is when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And he says, as I have loved you, love one another. And as I have served you, served one another. And that was his command, which is from the Latin mandatum, where they get Monday, M-A-U-N-D-Y. And so this is what the Christian church has done. And this has taken place over centuries. Now, most of us in here probably aren't familiar with, what do you mean? I don't do any of that. You know, I go get a ham, honey baked hams, or Farmer John, and I bring it home, and, you know, we hunt some Easter eggs, and we give those to the kids and grandkids, and that's what we do, right? We don't follow all of these different practices, but all of Christendom does. And I think it's good that we know what all of Christendom actually practices. Then you have Good Friday. And of course, this is when it is believed that Jesus was crucified. And there is a debate. Was he crucified on Thursday? Was he crucified on Friday? And he raised to life on Sunday. And was it three 24-hour days? Or was it just a partial day? And you can get into a long Bible study about that. I'm just going to tell you, Jesus was in the grave for three days. He rose from the grave on Sunday. I don't know... nobody knows which day it was, if he was crucified on Thursday or Friday. I'm not even going to get into that. But by church tradition, it was Friday that he was crucified, taken down, put into the sepulcher. It was sealed, and he rose on Sunday, which would be next week. And Holy Saturday is when Jesus rested. Of course, he's not going to be doing much because he has died He's inside the sepulcher. So this is what the Christian church has done. This is what the Christian church has practiced. Now, all of these things, they are based in biblical principles, except for the carnival, you know, and the the Fat Tuesday. 
that is so far from being biblical, I, I cannot describe to you. That probably came out of the book of the flesh somewhere that's printed. said, so this is what you're supposed to do. Uh, on a more somber note, remember the hijackers uh, for 9-11 that took down the Twin Towers? That's what they did the night before. They went out to strip clubs and they got drunk and they just had a, a revelry is what they were doing in. And, or that's what they were involved in. And the next day, oh, Allahu Akbar. You know, it's like they're going to be devoted to their God, Allah, and all of these people die. God would look at something like that as hypocrisy, is what he would say. It's not that we're supposed to have 40 days of a Lenten season where we are repentant. It's every day it's supposed to be like that, where... God, you know, I blew it yesterday. I want to do right today. I pray that you would help me and guide me by your Holy Spirit, that I would make the right choices, prompt me when I want to make a wrong choice. God wants that from us every day. And what are we willing to sacrifice? Off of your bodies is living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. Not that you have to give up meat. You know what I'm saying? Do you think God looks at us and goes, oh, you gave up meat. I have to bless you for that. And you're only eating fish because that's the biblical food, right? Fish. Now, it's, it's not like that. And we make these constructs. Again, I don't want to diss too much on the Catholic Church. Just give us enough time. We'll come up with our traditions, right? And so, but as Christians, we say, well, we've always done it this way. So we need to continue to do it this way. I would say, you just do what the Bible says. If he wants you to repent every day, if he wants you to pray every day, if he wants you to bless God every day, do those things. But let's not add to it. it it's like at Christmas time, we all have traditions. But those traditions should never be set in stone, right? We do them because we want to and should be a way of honoring God. Same thing with our resurrection day celebration. We should be doing those things because we think we're blessing God because of it, not because we're getting any merit or God's going to reward us for doing it. God rewards us again in spite of that. So what about this whole idea of Palm Sunday and the Passion Week or the week that leads up to his crucifixion? If God wanted us to know about it, would he tell us several times? I've used this example before. If you have a child that's going to do something wrong, of course, we all just tell him one time, no. Right? How do you do it? How do you tell a child, a young child, not to do something? You go, no, 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 because they're going to they're gonna go for it, right? And you, the obstinate ones do this. You say no, and they go. And they reach, they're reaching for it anyhow, and then you say no, 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 and they go. They're a little farther forward. And, you know, when God wants us to know something, how many times does he have to say it? Now, most of us would say once. He said it four times in four Gospels. He has this story laid out four times. He wants us to know about it. Mary, who anointed four times, she's listed there. And it would be preached throughout the whole world what she did. And Jesus says, I want you to know this. I want you to know this. Now, I'm saying metaphorically he said this. But he wants us to know what's going on with Palm Sunday and with the crucifixion and that week. He wants us to be aware. He wants us to have this information. One pastor did the biblical research on this. Almost half of the book of John is dedicated to the final week of Jesus' life on earth. 
about chapter 12 all the way through the end of the book. It begins there that last week. Two-fifths of the Gospel of Matthew is devoted to this week. Three-fifths of the Gospel of Mark is devoted to this week. One-third of the Gospel of Luke is devoted to this week. The Gospel writers place a significant amount of importance on this Passion Week. And so since they did, we want to pay attention to it. The Gospels have 89 total chapters. Four of those chapters are about are, are about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. So four of the chapters in all of those 89 chapters about, are about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Then 85 chapters consist of the last three and a half years of his life and 29 chapters are dedicated to the final week. If there are 29 chapters that God spelled out, do you think he wants you to know? Yeah, he wants you to know how much info is there. And when you start cross-referencing this material, it is so rich. There's so much in there. You could spend a whole series going through this. And so leading up, of course, to the Passover that we just went through in Exodus is this Palm Sunday. I'd like you to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 19. Now, we're going to go to chapter 19, chapter 12 of John and also Mark chapter 11. And we're just going to read this story. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 29, going through, looks like verse 44. As he approached Bethpage at Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. Now, wouldn't that be nice? God had already talked to the owners of this somehow and let them know. Somebody's going to come borrow your donkey, right? And they just took it. Okay, no problem. Master has need of it and just walked away. You see how God sets things up in advance? And he has done that for us as well. He has set up in advance all the works that we should do, the people we should come in contact with, the resources we will need. It's all there. If we're just doing his will, it's made available to us. If we're not doing his will, we never get the blessing. And so we want to make sure we're always doing his will. Then it goes on to say they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And he went along. People spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples! Exclamation point. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And of course, I could say all kinds of things about that, but I'm going to go on. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now... It is hidden from your eyes. Patty and I were driving down the road the other day, and she said, did Jesus cry twice in Scripture? And, of course, in the theologian that I am, I said, I said, well, you know, he is a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And I'm, I'm trying to think what she's talking about. And she goes, well, you know, it says here in, I think she said Luke. 
that he wept over the city. And I think we see twice. You guys know what the other time was that Jesus wept? Lazarus, right. He was overcome with grief. He's probably wailing. He was so overcome with this grief. Jesus, I'm sure, cried many times. If you are close to God, it will happen to you. It just is a response to God working in your heart where you are overcome with this sense of grief, whether it's your own sin or the sin of others or for those who aren't saved. God causes us to get to this point where we're like Jesus. Again, Jesus was a man of sorrows familiar with suffering. And so we want to be like him. We have to place ourselves in the position for God to have that happen. Going on, verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And so it is at this point Jesus tells them the prophecy that Titus will come in. I think I explained this last week or the week before. He will come in and he will destroy Jerusalem. And the temple, there were some words uh, that some historians have that they wanted to save it, but it caught fire and it burned down. And because the gold that was inside melted between the stones, they took off each one of the big stones threw them over the side, and they took the gold off of them first. They wanted all the gold. And so that's the story from history, which is out there. We're not told that in Scripture. Now turn over to John chapter 12, verse 12. And, of course, that destruction was a judgment because they did not recognize the time of the Messiah coming to them. In John chapter 12, we have the same story, the triumphal entry. In verse 12, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, that they had been done, or they had done these things to him. And of course, this is Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is a prophecy that Jesus would, in fact, come into Jerusalem on the foal of a, a donkey or on a um, colt, as it's spelled out here in the NIV. Now, this type of um, greeting, this type of welcome, here's the scripture in Second Kings that I alluded to earlier in chapter 9, verse 12. It says, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. This is King Jehu. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpets and shouted, Jehu is king. So I'm sure this was done in preparation of the true king over the universe who would show up and present himself to the nation of Israel. The triumphal entry in Mark is in chapter 11. I'd like you to turn over there. In Mark chapter 11, in verse 1, 
we have this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent to have his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are doing this, tell him the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw the cloaks over it. He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while they, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king, kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So the next day he shows up. And this is where he cleanses the temple for the second time. The first time was in the beginning of his ministry. And the second time he goes in there and he just overturns these tables in the money changers. If you don't know what this is about, I think most of you do. But if you came, for instance, if you go from the United States to Europe, in most of Europe right now you're going to have the euro. And some vendors would want you to use euros to buy something. They may accept American dollars, but they're going to give you change in euros. And so this exchange has to take place. Well, at the temple, all other money was unclean except for the temple money. And so they would say, well, give us your money, your Roman coins, your denarius or whatever it is, and we'll take it from you and we'll give you in exchange the temple money. And, of course, there's an exchange rate for that. And that exchange rate, you know, we have to make a little money sitting out here at the tables, you know. And that's what they did. They they made it a market, an exchange. If you go to an airport, an international airport, you'll usually find a little booth that says, exchange your money here. And you can exchange your money for whatever you need, whatever currency you need in that particular country. They'll take your money and they'll charge you for it in order to exchange the money. And so then you would also bring your animals to sacrifice, but those in the temple would say, "Ah, oh, you know, your dove and your pigeon and your oxen and whatever you want to sacrifice, it's a little substandard. You know, they kick the hooves a little bit and they, they punch the tires, so to speak. And it's just not right. And so they'll give you a temple animal. And that temple animal has already been approved. And the latest models, like if you went there today, would be 2017. Here we have our models for our Passover sacrifice. And you can buy this particular model and we'll take your model as a trade-in. You know, and that's what they would do. And they would make money on the exchange. Of course, the temple recommend animals were more expensive because they were perfect without blemish. But everyone that would bring the animal, it wasn't so perfect. Unless you knew somebody. If you know somebody, okay, come on, you can come on in, that type of thing. And so this was completely corrupt, and Jesus was mad about it. They probably had their carved olive statues of Moses off to the side. If you go to Israel today, they're everywhere. You have carved Jesus, you have carved Moses, you have carved nativity scenes all out of olive wood and you can buy all those and it's right next to the temple mount area you can get all that stuff and in the the garden of gethsemane and so they're making money off a religion and jesus said no way so he overturned the tables which 
made the other side veins pop out of these Pharisees and Sadducees. They just didn't like it. Why? Who do you think you are doing this? And of course, I've already explained that little story. And so after this, we know that during this week, the withered fig tree, Jesus wanted to have some figs. And of course, he couldn't find them. And because of that, he cursed the fig tree and it withered. And of course, the fig tree, some say, is a symbol of the nation of Israel. And that's where the curse came upon that nation. And when Jesus' authority was questioned, and I've already told you about this story, it is where Jesus wouldn't answer them. And basically setting up the scenario where Jesus is going to be crucified at the end of the week. Now, if we're going to understand this in light of scripture we cannot go too far without recognizing that this was a prophetic event daniel chapter 9 we're given the number of years that are going to transpire before the messiah shows up which is 483 years from the issue of issuing the decree to restore and rebuild jerusalem and of course that was under artaxerxes uh, that took place if you don't know any of this history there's a great book about this that you can go to and it's sir robert anderson's the coming prince and it follows the argument in detail and jesus showed up to the day it was prophesied to the day when he would show up in jerusalem after this decree was given and if the jews who were in charge the pharisees the lawyers the sadducees if if they were diligent they would have seen that he was in fact the messiah but they wouldn't they just rejected it. They, I don't, don't show me the evidence. I don't want to see it. Just, he's just the wrong guy. He's messing up things. And so that's why they crucified him. Some of them probably knew he was. And they just followed through because they didn't want the persecution of their peers. They didn't want to be cast out from the temple. They didn't want to be excommunicated, so to speak. And that happens today in the cults. If you do something wrong, they will excommunicate you. And they're no longer allowed to talk to you. They will even, in some cases, recommend that you get a divorce, that that's it. They're lost. They are forever going to be separated from God and the fellowship that lies ahead. And that's, what the, that's how the cults control. And that's what the Jews were doing, which made Jesus even more upset how the, the people who are supposed to be leading individuals to God were doing everything for their own benefit. And I think that's the thing that brings the curse, is when we're trying to do something for God, how will this benefit me? And God wants us to die to all of that. You don't serve because it benefits you or benefits me. It benefits someone else. And God even loves it more if you're serving in such a way where you can't be repaid. Where you just give up the service or you give up the money. And and you have done this of your own free will because you realize what God has done for us. Remember traditions of... Uh, Christians of this idea of what can I do for God to show him that I'm devoted to him. He knows that we are incapable of being 100% devoted. And so it's what God has done for us needs to be the focus. And he loves us so much. He goes, I don't care. I just want to save you. I love you so much. I want you to be in heaven. And I know you're going to blow it. And that's where my grace comes in, he tells us. And I'm going to shed my grace upon you. And it's going to be such a wonderful relationship. And when you get to heaven, you're going to say, wow, I don't deserve this. And God's going to go, I know. And we get to go into heaven and we just get blessed on top of that. But the only thing that's required is our acknowledgement. And our acceptance of that. And we don't like to do... The human race does not like to do that. It, it, you know, the... What? The self-esteem movement. Oh, you're so good. 
Wasn't it the last generation X that came up with a trophy for every child? You know, it's like, no, you're not good. You lost. You know, you don't get, and we have to look at that for our kids, the health of our kids. And scripture says, no, you're sinful. You're under judgment. And we try to do just the opposite, but we want to make them feel better. And look what we have done. We've turned out a society of narcissists. And we're all guilty of that to some degree. We want everybody just to feel wonderful and be happy. And God says, you are not wonderful and you're not going to be happy unless you acknowledge that you are sinful, that we are sinful. And that's all it takes. And God goes, finally, it's great, wonderful. And he accepts us to be his own. And see, that's the humility that we need to walk in. The application of this is, Not to focus on what we can do for Jesus. Jesus, if you want to focus on that, there's only one thing that we can do for Jesus. That's believe in him. We want to focus on what Jesus has done for us. Him presenting himself as a promise in scripture that he would be our sacrifice, the one that God would accept on our behalf. And what Jesus has done because of us Jesus would not have to go to the cross and be resurrected if we had not sinned. So it's because of what we have done in Adam. Some would say, well, it's not my fault. It's Adam's fault. Oh, yeah? Adam was perfect, and he chose wrong, and you're not. You think you're going to choose right? I'm sorry. They were both perfect, Adam and Eve. Of course, it was a woman who went first, you know, and then it was the man at... Just joking, okay? Adam's responsible for that. And because of that, he gets to work the ground by the sweat of his brow all the days of his life with no complaining. I'm sorry, you blew it. The both of you blew it. And so we want to make sure we understand it's what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus has done because of us. John Stott said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. We are guilty, but God gives us the forgiveness. All we have to do is say, God, will you forgive me? And he does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just your goodness. You are so good to us, and we are so harmful to ourselves and everyone else around us. It is such a mystery why you just didn't do away with us in the beginning and start over. But, Father, we understand You wanted us to have a free will and we can never comprehend the total ramifications of this. But we pray, Lord, that we would just walk in humility, focus on what you have done for us and help us to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen.